You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast.com at spymuseum.org Also, if you like what you hear and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better and you can help. We'd like to thank our friends at BetterHelp for sponsoring this week's podcast. You'll hear more about them later, but first, let's meet our guests. So today in SpyCast, we're, we're joined by Dr. John Ferris, and we're very pleased that he's taken time out of his schedule to join us today, and I'm personally thrilled that the podcast is going to be released when his book is released this coming Tuesday. So thank you, Dr. Ferris, and I wondered if to start, you could just tell us what has you been doing these past four and a quarter years? Well, certainly. <clears throat> I've been working as an historian in British Sagan since 1980. In fact, I'm certain that no one has been working in it as long as I've been. And I've been publishing as well. And the end result was that I built up a following among the people who were interested in history in both GCHQ and NSA. And so when GCHQ decided that it was going to put forward an authorized history, they had good reason to ask me. I was happy to accept. Basically, what they did was buy out my time at my university so that I could work full-time on researching classified material on GCHQ and SIGINT generally since 1945, and also write a history on British SIGINT essentially from 1890 to the present day. And that's what I've been doing. It's been a very long, tiring process. I was the first person to go through the documents I was using after 1945. Many of them are going to be released into the public domain sometime in the next few years, I am glad to say. And the end result is that I'm providing a, a preview of the work of GCHQ, including material that no one else has been able to use. More broadly, this is the first time anyone has been able to write about any signals intelligence agency from original documents for a prolonged period. And finally, I think I'm actually the first person to really try to discuss signals intelligence as a whole since it emerges in 1914. So for a number of reasons, what I'm doing is original and unique and broad. And, and what did it feel like to suddenly get access to all of these documents that you must have spent years thinking, I would just love to see some material that I cannot get access to? Was that like finding yourself in Aladdin's cave? 
in a way. I remember in 1983, as I was working in the old public records office, thinking to myself, wouldn't it be funny if someday I was asked to write the official history <laughs> of GCHQ? So, so for me, it really was like making the dream come true. It was both like being in Aladdin's cave and also very intimidating because there's a massive material. And what happened with SIGINT during the Cold War is not well represented in unclassified material. So I was learning things all the time. And it took me quite a while to get my bearings. On the other hand, once I got my bearings, it was rapidly easier and easier to make sense of what I was looking at. And since a lot of what I was doing was actually looking at how signals intelligence affected, say, British conflicts or it affected the struggle between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. I also then had to interpolate what I'd learned from SIGINT into the official diplomatic or military strategic record and answer the so what question. And to my mind, the so what question is the one that really matters. After you've done all of this stuff and you've reconstructed what SIGINT was, what did it do that anybody should care about? And in fact, I'd say that maybe a third of the book, which is 870 pages before the index, addresses that issue. I also wanted to explain who these people were. I wanted to say who these, these characters were, what signatures were like, what the men and women who worked in it were like, what their working conditions were, et cetera, et cetera, what, what are code breakers were. And so a large chunk of the book is looking at the people which proved to be a lot of fun, actually. Could you just break down what SIGINT is and what GCHQ is? Signals intelligence is regarded generally as being the most powerful form of intelligence because it is the one that's most likely to give you true and important facts. And it's the one where you are least likely to be dealing with unauthentic or controlled sources. It emerges as soon as the First World War breaks out. Um, you might say in 1913, people could have done SIGINT, but they didn't because they had no reason to. Once the First World War breaks out, they automatically start doing it because they need to. It involves intercepting communications, which in the First World War are low frequency radio communications plus cable and sometimes field telephones for armies in the front line. Communications intelligence means you are reading the content of messages. A lot of important messages are sent in plain language, and that includes in the Cold War. But if they're enciphered or encoded, then you have to find ways to break the code and strip the cipher from the message in order to get back to the original content. Now, in things like diplomatic intelligence, communications intelligence is far and away the most important thing. And it's what we think of most with SIGINT from, say, Ultra and the Second World War. And probably when you've got it in really good form, it is the best kind of intelligence you can get. Outside of the extremely rare case of a agent in place who actually can tell you what is being spoken of by high-level people on the inside, as well as providing intelligence on them. That probably can be better than SIGINT, but it's a very rare thing to find. You mentioned that the modern age of intelligence begins in 1914. Can you break that down a little bit more, please? I can. And in fact, I was the first person to come up with this idea, and I think that it's, that's accepted by a lot of specialists. Essentially what happens is that there are all sorts of things which can be merged into intelligence. Um, applying that to widespread and useful modes of communications like wireless or cable, which allows you instantaneous worldwide communication in real time, as well as the fact that two very powerful sources emerge in medial war starts, aerial observation, which rapidly turns into 
pure photography and imagery and SIGINT, which had never existed before. So historically, if you look at navies, in naval warfare, it's really hard to find another fleet at sea. Many, I'd say the majority of naval battles in history are encounter battles. You finally bump into somebody and then you have to fight. With SIGINT and radio, you can actually gather precise intelligence on enemy fleets and send it to your commanders at sea so that they can operate immediately on it. So fundamentally, naval warfare is transformed by radio and SIGINT. And for those reasons, really 1912 and 1914 are different ages of intelligence. Before 1914, code breaking is practiced against diplomatic traffic. Navies and armies understand that you can intercept radio traffic, but they haven't really figured out what to do with it. And they don't really practice much code breaking. Suddenly in 1914, they're doing all of these things at once everywhere. After the war, <clears throat> the key things that happen are both the British and Americans decide that they're going to keep up much larger SIGINT agencies than they've done before, but even more important, that they're going to continue their wartime cooperation. The wartime integration of Anglo-American and to a lesser degree Canadian and Australian SIGINT never ends. When the, the Pacific War is over, the Joint Chiefs of Staff write a letter to Harry Truman and say, Dear Mr. President, the great danger that we confront in the world is that of a nuclear Pearl Harbor. And in order to protect ourselves against that danger, it is a vital national interest that we continue to cooperate with British SIGINT. And that's the basis for what becomes famous as INCUSA, which is not a treaty, but instead it's a, an agreement between subnational elements of the British and American government, later the Canadians, Australians, and so on, that they will cooperate, work closely, exchange most things, not necessarily everything, which is which their governments know about and tolerate and accept. They're happy about it, but they're, they never, there's never an Anglo-American treaty. What essentially UCUSA does is allow us to say every day, the second, third world war will not break out today or tomorrow. We have a very clear picture of what events are like. It helps to reduce nervousness. And it helps us to understand what the enemy can and cannot do. Finally, when the Cold War is over, UCUSA continues. GCHQ, which had declined compared to the Americans substantially, if slowly, actually has a renaissance. GCHQ comes to terms with the internet maybe a decade before NSA. And GCHQ transforms itself from a militarized Cold War SIGINT agency focused on Warsaw Pact militaries into an organization that's focused on all potential targets on the internet. And we're in that world today. UCUSA continues. It remains a tops, it remains a key to the relationships of major powers in the world. And my own belief is that actually UCUSA remains a fundamental element in our national security, whether it's Canada, the United States, or Britain. Even today, for example, the British are protecting American national security by focusing on dealing with certain threats, while the Americans are helping Canadian <clears throat> and British national security by focusing on others. We are the biggest SIGINT power in the world, collectively. And in a world we're in, that's a good thing to be. I'm desperate to get into the house and to have a look right. at some of the furniture and some of the rooms. Can you right. can you take us into one of your favorite rooms and tell us why it's one of your favorite rooms? Actually, I think my favorite rooms are looking at the people in GCHQ because when I started doing this, I wanted to be able to explain both the GCHQ and to the world who these people were because they've never really adequately been described. And 
there are things that are popularly known. So the idea that code breakers are eccentric, which is true, is something which is very widely thought of. What that actually means in practice takes other forms. So let me just go spend a few minutes dealing with this. Role of women. Um, from the very beginning, women have played an important role in British SIGINTS and SIGINTS in other countries. Out of the, say, 10,000 people who were SIGINTERS in Britain in the First World War, about 3,000 are women. Um, in the Second World War, if you move away from the front, women make up, oh, about half of SIGINTERS. And women are doing things which are very often regarded as masculine. So from 1942 onward, almost all new British radio intercept operators are female. You have lots of all-female intercept crews, and they're really good. In fact, the, the man who runs the most sophisticated version of British radio interception, Kenworthy, during the war, actually thinks women are, the best women are better than any men. And this is a true story. He sends like 21-year-old girls out to radio intercept outstations in order to retrain <laughs> these grizzled <laughs> men in how to actually do their work well. But after the, the Second World, and there are also lots of women who are involved in British code breaking. Britain and the United States are the two countries up until 1945 where women have a position that matters in code breaking. Um, and in the British case, one of their leading code breakers, Emily Anderson, you know, of course. And if you look at the people who are running British SIGINT against the Italians during the Second World War, they're almost all women. There are a few men who are at the very top, but there are also women who are at the very top. And people, for example, who are attacking Italian air are led by a woman. Um, Marie Rose Egan, and her team is all female. Um, Dudley Knox, who's this famous eccentric bathtub code breaker, ends up with a team that's all female. And they actually do things like break Italian Navy enablement. But even more importantly, they break into German intelligence communications. And that really matters because if you're going to do deception effectively, it really helps to know what German intelligence thinks. And it's because of these women that deception is able to function as effectively as it does. And I think my main point is that this is a living organization which changes every generation. What it is in 1918 is not what it is in 1939 or 1975. And what it is today is not like what it was in the Cold War. You know, there are a lot more graduates in fact, it's really graduate dominated. And I myself find that the donut is like being in a university. You really do have a sense of the university. Whereas NSA, which I really love, great institution, when you go into Mead, it's more like a military academy. And that's not a slight in the sense that if you're doing, if you're thinking about strategy, you need both the university and the military academy. And one of the reasons UKUSA worked so well is the British and Americans both uh, focus on different strengths. They bring a different mixture of characteristics to the table, which means that they're actually helping each other. What one kind of big historical event do you think that your history will lead us to say, yeah, actually, that needs to be corrected quite significantly. Well, the first thing I'd say is that actually one of my arguments is that in the popular, in the popular imagination, we overrate the relative importance of ultra to Britain's survival and to Allied victory in the Second World War. There's been a, a tendency to romanticize that and to overestimate why it matters. Intelligence can't win a war on its own. And really, you need to be strong and preferably smart in order to use intelligence well. And it's because Britain and above all else, the Anglo the Commonwealth American Alliance is so strong and well led that SIGINT is helpful. 
but Britain would not have, Britain didn't survive because of SIGINT. And in the end, SIGINT helps the Anglo-American alliance to win faster and more cheaply than it would have done otherwise. But under the circumstances, I don't actually even think that it's a first rank factor in winning the war. I'm willing to argue over that, but that's my view. Now, on the other hand, if you look, say, in the First World War, one of the things that I demonstrate is that the Germans, French, and the British, and later the Americans, on the Western Front developed SIGINT really fast and well. It enters into what they do all the time. Often they're using it with real sophistication. But it's hard to actually make big operational gains out of it, simply because it's hard to move fast and deep anywhere on the Western Front. But I do show that in lots of battles, it matters. And in the case of the Somme in July 1916, it's crystal clear that really bad security on the British side gives the Germans real advantages. Essentially, the Germans have a very clear idea of the precise time and place of half of the British attacks on the first day of the Somme, which really does help you slaughter people as they're coming over the top. Now, if we get into the Cold War, if you look across the board, and I've gone through the, I, I talk a lot about the Hungarian and Czechoslovak crises. I talk a bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis. What is clear when you go through all of these things is that SIGINT is a fundamental component of decision-making. But what I'm happy to say is that you cannot understand any major crisis of the Cold War, including ones which I don't discuss, without knowing the SIGINT record. And for example, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was no surprise to Western signators. The British and Americans follow the buildup of Soviet forces all the way through 1979 and give a very clear warning a couple of weeks before the invasion that an invasion seems very likely. So this is a hidden dimension of the Cold War and it's very important. I think for all of us. In the case of the Balkans conflict, what I really had access to was the complete military and naval SIGINT record and can demonstrate that when it comes to the war at sea, well, the British, I don't think, could have won the struggle at sea without SIGINT. And the commander of the task force, Sandy Woodward, after the conflict, says, in my estimation, GCHQ was worth 20% of my fleet, which is a major statement. On the other hand, when it came to the moment that you have invaded, then SIGINT suddenly becomes of much less value. Well, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more about Bletchley Park and your, your re-evaluation of, of, of that sort of myth. Well, the first thing I want to say is that Bletchley is an astonishing thing to observe. And I personally feel privileged as an historian to have been able to walk in the footsteps of people like Alan Turing, Gordon Welchman, or Max Newman. These are great minds. And watching how they solve problems so well is really quite an honor. So I'm deeply impressed by what they do. And indeed, I'm deeply impressed by the fact that the British were able to make it work at all. This is a really difficult thing to create. It works in part because there's a, a native way that the British state cooperates with scientists and firms, and Bletchley simply follows that tradition. Um, the British tend to be willing to give real authority to experts. If you're recognized as an expert, the British state will actually pay attention to your comments. And so when Welshmen and Turing achieve that status, they're able to do amazing things. In order to do all of these different things, you have to have a combination of different people. And, you know, there are 10 to 20 individuals, including the people who can build workable 
cipher breaking machines, all of whom are essential to the outcome. Turing is the most important of them. And Turing, of course, is the leading figure in the creation of computing science, of the computer, of, of mathematical of cryptography. So the British simply, now the thing is the Americans have as many bright mathematicians and the Germans have far more than the British do. Although, as I say, Turing is the wild card because of his conceptualization of the computer and Welshman because of his, his cybernetic thinking is also a wild card. But the American SIGINT agencies never have direct access to leading American mathematicians. And the German SIGINT agencies do have access to leading German mathematicians, but these are really conventional guys. They're the people who build theories. They're the people who are the, the well-known university um, mathematicians of the time. The kind of people that GCHQ had specifically tried not to hire. <laughs> so in a way, it's because GCHQ knew that it was looking for a specific kind of mathematician that it got the results that it did. Is there something that you that is jumping around inside of you that's like, I, I wish I could tell people about this, but I can't? There are things that I wish I could talk about, but actually there is nothing that I saw that's fundamental that I wasn't able to find a form of words to address. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. There are things I wasn't allowed to talk about much. So for example, GCHQ and NSA are neither willing to confirm nor deny the Snowden leaks, although the British and American governments have both specifically said at least some of the material released by Snowden is legitimate, real. So all I did with Snowden in the end was to outline the effect of his leaks on politics. And they really are quite important for GCHQ. They do drive it toward being more open. So that's about as far as I could go. Mm -hmm. But certainly, certainly there are things in the public domain that I couldn't include in this history that I might write about later on. Mm -hmm. So the whereas I don't think there's anything fundamental that I know about that I couldn't include, the thing that I couldn't do really was to integrate in the form of this authorized history, something that would link things in the public domain, like about Snowden or Crypto AG. I'd say that my book is, is necessary to see how things developed. But there will be other important works coming out in the next 20 or 30 years. There already is a huge, NSA has released a huge amount of material, far more than anybody but a handful of specialists know. And all you need to do is look around for it on the internet. When we think about that word authorized, there are certain things that we can unpack. Um, so, I mean, a couple of questions. One of them was, did you look at other authorized histories to get a sense of the genre? Um, yeah. Follow-up question to that was, you know, obviously one of the, the, the criticisms that gets leveled against authorized histories is that, you know, even if you get you know, the director of the agency who writes a nice foreword saying, you know, we never interfered with the analysis. The the historian is inevitably going to pull their punches or some or to some extent they're not going to follow through. So you're you're one of the few people <laughs> that's written an authorized history of uh, secret intelligence agencies. So therefore you're an expert source in this subject. So help us understand this a bit more, please. The people who are like me, in other words, were outsiders who were made official or authorized historians are in a different position than people who are insiders who are then writing histories that can be published openly. And I'm, this is not intended to be a slur on any of them. The, the difference is that they are living under a different category of classifications that I am. 
Now, in my case, the agreement, all, every official historian in the British instance has a different arrangement. So Keith Jeffrey for SIS, his story ended in 1946, but he was allowed to see essentially everything up until then. Um, Chris Andrew for MI5 and I both were given wide ranging access up until the moment when we're dealing with issues which have current technical applicability. So Chris had access to an extraordinary number of files, but I doubt that he had access to anything which was currently being worked through in 2008, which is when he finished his book. Now, in my case, the agreement was essentially, they're not going to give me anything on diplomatic communications intelligence after September 1945 because it's too embarrassing. I thought fine, just to bother me, because I could use stuff from the interwar years and write about it and then talk about diplomatic code breaking in that context. The other thing was that there'd be nothing that was of current technical applicability, and I can't disagree with that at all. So the things that were removed from the book by GCHQ and NSA essentially were moments when I wrote up the full story from the notes that I had available on specific issues, and it's usually after 1970. And then they would say, this is compromised and are potentially compromising. Finally, all of these agencies that cooperate have procedures whereby they're regarded as having equities in anything that's written publicly, and they have the right to take themselves out of a story. And a substantial number of agencies chose that route. Fortunately, NSA agreed to cooperate with GCHQ from the very beginning, otherwise the book couldn't have been done. And NSA was very generous in the speed with which it went through the manuscript and its willingness to let me talk about American things and sometimes to say things that were critical of the Americans, as I say things that are critical of the Brits too. Finally, I'd have to say GCHQ met its word. It actually gave me more material than it promised. So for example, originally I wasn't supposed to talk about code breakers after 1945. But I think the codebreakers were so determined to be included in the story that they ultimately gave me useful material. And the story was supposed to end at the Cold War. Restrictions on me, well, I said what I wanted. Um, as I say, with things like Snowden, I simply accepted the fact that I would not talk about it in detail because actually I didn't have the space for it. I never pulled any punches. And the final thing, that the most important thing, is that the material I used will generally be released either to the National Archives or put on GCHQ's website imminently, sometime in the next several years. And what that means is that any historian who wants to will then be in a position to say, Ferris got it wrong. And so that, as far as I'm concerned, removes a lot of the power behind arguments, which will say, you know, Ferris is bought off or you know, Ferris was fooled by the glamour of GCHQ. And in fact, I have to say that by the end, I'd sort of lost a sense of the glamour of GCHQ. I realized in the last few times I went into the donut, but actually it just felt like going to work. <laughs> you know, it didn't feel like going into this particular place. And the same was true the last time I went into the NSP. So at a certain stage, although I remain fascinated by them, the effect of the glamour has worn off. Fortunately, I know this is a complicated question, but in like percentage terms, did what eighty percent of what you wanted to get through come through, or was it lower, or was it higher, or is that just the wrong analogy to use? I would say that for ninety percent of what I wrote, there was virtually no change at all. Sometimes if the people I was working at thought that I was wrong, they'd talk with me and argue with me, which was good. Sometimes I changed my mind and I learned a lot in the process. For about 10 to 20 percent, this is, I'd say, largely late Cold War or Falklands War, things were removed for political reasons. Now, the way it worked is that I never had the security classification 
thank God, because if, if I did, anything I wrote in the future would have to be approved by the GCHQ historian. And although I get along very well with them, it would really complicate my life. And it would also be hard for them to make it work. So instead, what they did was to temporarily create a level of declassification for documents to which only I had access. And the idea is that eventually that level of declassification will be open to anyone. This is typical of all of us authorized historians. We don't directly go into the archives. We have a, a cleared archivist who does that for us. One of the joys of, of Cheltenham is that the buses have GCHQ listed as one of the, the destinations. It's really hilarious. Um, and I could have worked there all the time. Instead, I was operating from Calgary. Finally, what they did was put the material on the cloud, which they thought had enough security to protect historical documents, which generally speaking, did not have any current technical applicability. And so I could download the material from there and did. I did spend a lot of time in Cheltenham and it certainly was easier to handle the documents when I was there than it is at home. On the other hand, it was horrible in the hotels and horrible having to take taxis or buses from hotels to the donut. And so in the end, the ideal situation would have been to rent a flat near GCHQ. And if I know, knew then what I know now, that's what I'd have done. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. One of the things that I found fascinating in the book was you discuss the path from secrecy to translucency, you call it. Walk us through that evolution and, and, and describe for the listeners what, what's kind of going on there. Well, after the Second World War was over, Anglo-American signatures became convinced that secrecy was essential to their success. They considered the idea of publishing recognition of ultra and then turned against it. And they were driven by an obsessive focus on secrecy all the way through to the early 60s. But by the early 60s, they start to become convinced that they can't keep it up much longer. GCHQ does a long study of how often it's been referred to in open sources, especially trade or uh, service journals or the Gloucestershire Echo, which is the local newspaper, and realizes that actually hundreds of references in the public domain that can identify it as a signet agency. And in fact, people in, in Cheltenham know that they do foreign office communications. That's the cover story. So say by 2005, I, among, among other academics, was being contacted by the GCHQ historian, Peter Freeman, who is a very important figure in bringing GCHQ in the open. Um, Lots of businessmen and journalists were being contacted. The GCHU thought that it could control this process by which it would come slowly more and more into the open. The Snowden disclosures blow that out of the water in the sense that so if you look at what Snowden releases, a huge amount of it actually is GCHQ material provided to NSA, which is fine for me as an historian. From a British point of view, it's kind of embarrassing. And GCHQ realizes at this stage that it's going to have to open itself up. On top of that, GCHQ is conceptualizing its job increasingly as being protecting British society 
from foreign states and foreign cyber criminals. It realizes that it needs to be operating in the open. And so GCHQ decides strategically, we're going to have to be more open than we've ever done. And they use the word translucent, which I borrow from Dave Sherman, a retired NSA official. It's really transparent is impossible. You can't be a secret agency and be transparent. The translucent, sure. Enough light gets through that a lot can be seen, but still a lot remains hidden. And so it was at that stage they decided they were going to use their centenary as a means to have their history outlined. They wanted to have a history that would be taken seriously as being independent and critical, that would explain to the British public, this is what GCHQ is. This is what it has been. This is what it does. And so there's no question but that from GCHQ's point of view, this is an attempt to explain itself to the British public. I, as an historian, am part of that process. But at the same time, I can tell you, there are lots of things I talk about in the book, which GCHQ finds very embarrassing, like the existence of a color bar in terms of employment in the 1950s and 60s. Massive problems in the competence of its cyber, cyber security in the 1930s, et cetera, et cetera. I support their mission, but I don't believe in covering up mistakes. And I also am perfectly happy to talk about its successes, but at the same time, I'm going to talk about its failures too. Looking back over the, his the history of GCHQ, what would you say are its, what was its biggest success and what was its biggest failure? The biggest failure is the cybersecurity issue of the 1930s, which means that when it enters the Second World War, its cryptography is actually much weaker than the Germans. The only thing that saves Britain is the fact that the RAF on its own has developed a cipher system called Typex, which is a version of Enigma linked to teleprinters, actually although later on, almost all Typex are simply used manually. But the end result is the British are in a much worse cipher position in 1940 than the Germans are. And part of the story of the first few years of the war is how the British dig themselves out of this hole while also building a means to kill the Germans. By the way, the Americans are in an even worse position. I'm not sorry. Greatest success? Well, the greatest successes, I would say, are figuring out how to make SIGINT work in the Second World War, creating Ultra. But I'd also say that an almost equal success is GCHQ's ability to transform itself in the early 1990s from being this highly militarized organization focused on high-frequency Warsaw Pact military traffic into a much more flexible agency that's designed for the internet age. And they do that by a really impressive work of internal reorganization. The thing about GCHQ is it's very agile, very flexible, but the way that the agility and flexibility work change rapidly. And it's constantly changing. In fact, it's changing radically today. There is no doubt that, that in the past five years or so, GCHQ has started to do things which in 10 years time will make it a fundamentally different organization than it is now. And it's good, one of the strengths I think of the organization is its willingness to change the way it operates. A couple of final questions. Are there any historical figures whose stock um, has risen as a result of your research or that has fell as a result of your research? I would actually say that Montgomery is a very good consumer of intelligence, and he does have really unusual characteristics as a general, a weird ability to read what the other side will do that makes it easier for him to use culture. I'd say that Rommel declines as a result of my analysis because I show that Rommel is heavily dependent on good SIGINT, and when the quality of the SIGINT declines, he falls. I don't actually think that when I get to the Cold War, 
that there's any really important figure whose stock rises or falls. I would say that, in, that there, for example, if you're looking at the commanders in the Falklands conflict, yes. Um, anybody who reads what I say and then looks at um, those commanders will change their views because you'll see what kind of intelligence they had and how well they used it or not. I think that I probably do something slightly to raise Mrs. Thatcher's um, standing during the Falklands War because I, I think actually that she was a reasonably good consumer of Sagan and a very determined and courageous leader. But there aren't really that many famous people whose position will be changed. I will say that anyone who reads me will end up saying the way the British handle intelligence is pretty good. One of the issues that a lot of our listeners will be interested in is the the Anglo-American uh, yes. relationship. It's so close that even Stansfield Turner, the, di the, the director of central intelligence under Jimmy Carter, says that, that you know, NSA and GCHQ are like Siamese twins. Could you speak a little bit more about those Siamese twins? GCHQ shapes the way American SIGINT develops, both in the sense that GCHQ tries to nudge the Americans into adopting procedures that are more effective. And also because the Americans rely so heavily on GCHQ in the first decade after 1945, that naturally that shapes the way they develop. Um, in 1973-74, the British and Americans divide over policy in the Middle East. Edward Heath, who's the prime minister, will not do what Henry Kissinger wants. And Henry Kissinger tries to retaliate by having NSA break off cooperation with GCHQ. Now, NSA, which is under the Secretary of State for Defense, says a number of things, one of which is, who are you? Are you the Secretary of State for Defense? If not, how are you going to give us orders? But the other thing they say, and this is really untrue, is that UCUSA is actually a binding commitment. But the real point is that if, if Kissinger had done what he wanted, he would have wrecked American SIGINT, especially American SIGINT in the Middle East, because the British handle SIGINT in the Middle East for UCUSA, and they and the Americans are absolutely inextricably involved in working against Russia. If Kissinger had got what he wanted, he would have wrecked American intelligence. Um, essentially, they are interlinked. And if you were to break up UCUSA now, it would take the United States years, maybe a decade, to get itself back into shape. And in the interim, there would be major areas of vulnerability. Um, the British would probably simply reduce the scale of what they do, but they would be weaker as well. And for the Canadians, Australians, and Kiwis, it would be a disaster. But in essence, the combination makes all of us more powerful. But I will tell you that British and American signatures often say to me that they're not sure that UCUS is going to last much longer because they're not certain that there will be public willingness or tolerance for this very odd organization to continue. Because really what it means is that the American state is allowing the British to have access to the highest secrets of the American state that most American organizations have no access to. The same is true for the Brits and the Americans. So it's an absolutely anomalous organization, which only works because the members of UCUSA trust and respect each other and have always avoided challenging each other's vital interests and generally have supported each other. One of the quotes that I love from the book. Um, you say, once the Khyber Rifles defended far from <laughs> British frontiers, now the Cyber Rifles do yeah. so in the far mid and near space. I wondered if you could, yeah, for the uninitiated, uh, help them understand the Cyber rif Rifles, please. Well, the Khyber Rifles were an organization the British used in the Khyber Pass. 
irregular forces the British could pay <clears throat> who would maintain peace in the Khyber Pass. And this is common across the British Empire. The Brits will hire locals to handle local problems for them. So when I thought about Khyber rifles and then considered what the National Cyber Security Center was doing, cyber rifles came naturally to mind. And I am looking forward to seeing how far people in the NCSC respond to the name cyber rifle. And just one, one final question to close out. Would it be too simple to say if the 19th century belonged to the seas and the 20th century to the air, the 21st century belongs to the realm of cyber? It is, it is too simple, but there's a, a real essential core to it. There's no doubt in my mind that in the past 30 years, what we loosely call cyber has become increasingly and vitally central to our lives, societies, and military forces in power. And I do not see that trend changing. That doesn't mean that kinetic forces are not fundamental either, but nonetheless, it means that so-called cyber ones are more and more important. And so I would say that we'll see a continuation of the trend in the next 30 years where organizations like GCHQ or NSA become steadily more and more important relative to other elements of armed force for the state and society. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi everybody, it's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.